0: Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford Canine is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like Canine Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford Canine also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website. Www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode. 50 of Canines Talking Sense. I can't believe we have made it this far and of course is no doubt thanks to all of you guys and your support we are at over 700,000 downloads so that's astounding in itself Um, we have 10 more episodes left of season 3 and then starting next year we begin season 4 and we will keep it all going I am actually out here in Los Angeles, just finishing up our electronic media detection dog class. Everybody just certified today, so I am actually sitting back, having a beer, celebrating the fact that this uh, electronic media class, the first of its kind here in the States, done the way following what our colleagues do over in Holland at the uh, forensic uh, scent dog center or detection dog center in Holland there. We have adopted their standards. And this is the first group that where we copied what they did based on the two years of research that they conducted on uh, electronic media. So those that know uh, electronic media, the typical chemical is TPPO. We actually did not follow that. We went with uh, the new version. And all I can say is, wow, the results without a doubt speak for itself. So there'll be more to come on that, on Electronic Media Detection. We'll have another episode on that one. But uh, when I continue with this, I'll be heading up to Boise, Idaho from here. So I hope when everybody's listening to this, this will be the Labor Day weekend. I'll be up there in Boise doing some nose work training as well as working with some police departments later that week. Just staying on the the road out here. This is leg three of my four-leg trip. Before I head off to another set of trips, coming up, I'll be heading to Albuquerque. I'll be doing a seminar out there for Search and Rescue, a canine cognition seminar. Uh, From there, up to Reno, to the Western States Canine Conference. From there, to Indiana, to the American Tactical Canine Seminar. I leave early from there, and if all goes planned, if there's no COVID changing everything, I'll be off to Switzerland, and that'll take me through... Uh, The middle of October. So yeah, I'm putting some miles on. That is for sure. Again, I want to thank everybody. I wouldn't reach this milestone. And for this episode 50, I wanted to bring on somebody who was kind of a heavy hitter, somebody that most of you know, and those of you don't know, as he would say, go choke yourself. Um, Mike Ritland is the guest on this episode. And Mike and I talk quite a bit on all different aspects of training. And both of us share um, a history working for Naval Special Warfare. He was actually a Navy SEAL. And I was just a contract instructor, thanks to my good friend, Jeff Franklin, who brought me on out there. And I did four years there. And that was one of the best four years of my career, getting to work with those highly skilled professionals. Uh, Mike was one of those highly skilled professionals. And he also did uh, work as a SEAL before he came back and worked as a SEAL team, multipurpose canine instructor. So we'll get into that episode. As usual, the topics... Uh, I like to talk about before each episode begins. Um, This time, because it's episode 50, I'm not going to really, there's not much to harp on. As you guys see, we're doing a lot of puppy stuff. It's great to see so many more people out there developing young dogs for detection. So please keep it up. Be on the lookout. We are weeks away from the new Ford Canine website, totally revamped, totally redone webinars. There'll be online classes. We are in the process of making videos. The videos won't come out right away when the website does, but there'll be soon online video uh, for detection dog training, all different aspects from nose work to professional, from bomb drug to bed bug to uh, leak detection, things of these natures. So yeah, we've been busy, that's for sure. So I want to give my shout-outs on this episode again, Canines United. You guys have been a huge help to this industry. Those who don't know who they are, please go check out Canines United. Their website will be listed in the show notes. Also, again, Grassroots Canine, uh, Maryland. Little Miss Kelsey over there. Little fire plug that she is. If you're not following her on social media, go follow her, Canine Kelsey or Grassroots Canine Maryland. In addition, I want to thank Psy Canine for always being a great sponsor for this show, always uh, sharing information. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury have been fantastic. They share tons of information, travel, do seminars as well. Um, So again, thank you to you guys. So I am not going to hold this up any longer I hope everybody's having a great Labor Day weekend if you're listening to this at this time, Um, but this is going to be a fun episode. So here we go, kicking off episode 50 with Mike Ritland. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This episode, I get to sit down with a friend of mine. And uh, we both have podcasts. Um, we've both worked with Naval Special Warfare. He is also a author, canine trainer, inter- uh, entrepreneur. And if you don't know of him or his podcast, go choke yourself. Mike, welcome to the show. Mike Ritland.
2: Well, thank you, man. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure.
1: So obviously, you know, our connection, you know, kind of started off with both being part of the Naval Special Warfare program. I got to go there as a contractor being hired by our friend Jeff Franklin from Cobra Canine. And, um, you know, for me, that exposure uh, pushed me to be a better dog trainer because I had been doing, you know, the typical military police dog training. And when I got into that community one the peer pressure of going hey guys we need this to work a certain way or we need this to work in any number of crazy conditions you came into it already being an operator coming into it how did you find your way into dogs and then obviously marrying what you did as an operator with the teams to uh dog training
2: Sure. So, um, you know, for me, the, the kind of how I found my way into it, I mean, I, I grew up with bird dogs in in Northern Iowa uh, and I had a lot of friends that, that their, their dads and, and them trained, uh, just basic duck hunting stuff with, uh, mostly labs. And uh, I was just always fascinated by it. We had a lab growing up, didn't do a ton of training with them, but I spent a shitload of time with them. Um, you know, I'd come home from school and I'd take them on, you know, two, three, four hour walks sometimes listen to music and and just walk all over, over town with them. And I, and I just, I liked exercising them. I liked walking with them. I liked hanging out with them. And I just, I kind of was fascinated by, uh, by dogs in general at a, at a fairly young age. Uh, once I came into the military, I got involved into, into hunting dogs, hog dogs for uh, a few years that's really where i kind of learned the animal husbandry aspect of it uh, whether it was veterinary therapies or uh, breeding theory genetic theory and and uh, you know kind of the nuts and bolts of of line breeding and uh, you know using things like rights in breeding coefficient to to determine you know the percentages of of ancestry in dogs and and how that affects uh, you know, the, the likelihood of, of the propensity of the genetics of that dog being passed down into the offspring and in a lot of cases when it doesn't, um, you know, and, and realizing that, uh, you know, genetics are are a quirky thing. It's kind of a, a weird mix of, of both science and art uh, and luck, frankly. But um, th- that's where I, I, I got a lot of, of kind of my feet wet, if you will, with, with that kind of stuff, conditioning dogs. Uh, you know, for hunts, th- you know, things like that. And so um, then when I was on a deployment to Iraq, there was a, a Marine single-purpose bomb dog that was in the same area that we were in uh, that, that, you know, saved uh, a number of Marines' lives. And, th- and that was just kind of the light switch moment for me where I was like, holy shit, you know, how how have we been doing all the same type of stuff and we never had dogs with us? And so that that's what uh, sparked my curiosity and piqued my interest. And then from then on, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I I dove kind of headfirst into uh, learning everything I could about, uh, you know, the the herder type dogs and and primarily the, you know, the dual purpose aspect of, of working dogs and and just really getting into it. And, uh, you know, started, you know, importing dogs and, uh, you know, working with police departments or sport clubs or really anybody that I could, I could bend their ear or, or try to learn from. Uh, And then as I was transitioning out of the Navy uh, in 2008, uh, I, I, um, kind of flirted with the notion of, of, um, staying in and was offered a position as a handler at the same unit that, you know, you and I were both at, uh, and turned it down to get out and start my own company, which was a very difficult decision, uh, at that point. But I, I felt, you know, bang for my buck wise, uh, I, I could have a greater impact by starting a company that, uh, you know, trained lots of dogs and handlers and, uh, you know, had a bigger footprint than just just one one man and one dog, you know, you know handler team type of thing. So uh, that that's kind of the the long story long, if you will, of, of kind of how how it all happened.
1: <laughs> no, and it, it makes sense. I mean, obviously, both of us being from that program, I I definitely think you made the right decision because, as we both know, the lifespan handler time um, within that community is is short lived. You're only a handler typically under two years. So you're in and out, you, you go through all that training, get that bond, work with that dog, do your deployment, and then come back and typically go back to your team or join trade ed or what have you. And it ends up, that was one of my biggest frustrations as a trainer was, man, you guys are investing so much into this person. And then you're just kicking them back to the team And we're starting all over again. And that knowledge base that was built goes away. And I understood the dynamics on the military side of that equation, which was, oh, we have to, you know, we got to make them promotable. They have to be able to develop as an operator. And if they get stuck in the dog, it's the same in the law enforcement world. It was always brought up as if you get stuck in canine, you get passed by. And one of the points I made to one of the head shed there was, you know, here's your numbers. You know, more than fifty percent of the guys got their way back into trade it in NS, in the MPC uh, program, and stayed there anyway for the their short uh, deployment. So they were still three years in, but they just weren't working dogs. They just kind of became, you know, helping out in training, giving their experience from the operator point of view to the new handlers. But I was I was like, so if you're, yeah, I understand the goal, um, but yeah, it was a tough thing to watch some really good, passionate guys who love dogs, who would want to stay in the program as much as they could have to, you know, go back begrudgingly sometimes and rejoin the team and go back to being an operator and doing all the cool guy stuff that way. But yeah, the the dog stuff was, um, you know, it's a unique tool or mission asset to, to the teams. And, you know, it's like with like JTAC and SOTP and some of the other ones, you go through that training and then they keep those guys there doing those jobs for the most part. You know, you always had your, you know, your additional guys that you could plug and play, but um, it's, it's, it's just tough. And as, so as as a dog person that you are, it was really cool to see that, you know, as a tough decision, but obviously you got to spend, how many years did you end up doing uh, in the training uh, program when you came back as a trainer?
2: So it was in 2011 and 2012, the, the company that I started, we got the contract in 2010. Uh, And so for that 10, 11, 12, that, you know, roughly three year period is, is when we held the contract. Now I sent, uh, you know, a good mutual friend of both of ours, Wayne Dodge, who I I can't, can't put on a high enough pedestal, frankly, in terms of, of what, what he taught me and, and continues to, frankly, is that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, as well-rounded of a of a dog guy as as that guy, and so uh, it was a a huge blessing. And, and I know you're uh, interviewing Subtle this week too. That's actually he he introduced me to Wayne. Uh, I called Mike and I said, you know, hey, we got the contract um, I'm looking for a trainer to go out there, you know, I'm asking a bunch of different people who, who you would nominate type thing. And and he resoundingly said, Wayne. And so I called him, talked to him and hired him over the phone, uh, you know? <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and we've been, you know, very, very good friends ever since. And so, um, but you know, to your earlier point, um, you know, I think it's a classic case of, just the, the disconnect that exists, uh, frankly, in, in a lot of walks of life, whether it's big business or government or military or what have you, is that the people that are that are in the position to make decisions like that are so fucking disconnected from the people doing that job that they, they oftentimes are, are blinded by that and make a shitty decision. And I think that's a classic case of it is that you know the dog teams. It's not a weapon system, right? It's not a, a new sniper rifle, a new piece of night vision optics. It's not uh, you know a, a new fucking shoulder-fired missile or a, a new mobility platform. Uh, you know, it, it's not an inanimate thing that you can that you can learn that's closely related to all the other shit that you already know and are doing. You know, it's a living, breathing animal animal that has you know psychological drives that are, that do differ from us. Uh, and you know they they learn you know that that in, in that a plus b equals c formula uh more like a calculator than our mind works in terms of pairing things together, and so you know from my standpoint like that that's not one of those things that that you move guys in and out of uh you know i I think it should be its own thing, the same way development group is, the same way traded is, the same way anything is, and I think you know instead of just you know accepting the fact the way police and and in this case uh you know the the mpc team did of saying well you know this is the system and, and guys won't promote well fucking change it then you know like instead of saying this is how it is and, and we're going to do what what's worse for the operational capacity of the dogs and the guys because we, they want to promote how about you just fucking change it so that that they have the ability to promote there and, and it's a legitimate detachment that uh, that isn't going to fuck guys over for going there and staying there their entire career and becoming subject matter experts, which is what you need, because, you know, you you do need guys that, that have the operational experience and the canine experience. Now, if I had to pick one over the other, I would say, you know, if, if the guy is really, really good in terms of training, whether it's hiring trainers, I think that's far more valuable than somebody that has the operational experience. And I can say that even as an operator is that if I had to pick and I did, you know, I could have hired anybody and I hired a guy that was not a special operator because he was a really good dog trainer. And to me, there's, there's enough experience there. Um, You know, you, you, have the operational experience you need with the operators What you need is somebody who's really good at getting dogs to do whatever the fuck it is that you want them to do and then work with the operators to integrate them in in as realistic as a way possible and then push the envelope and see what you can uh, you can attain with them uh, capacity capability wise. But um, those two things drive me nuts in the industry is that just that default answer of, well, this is how it is. And it's like it doesn't have to be that way. Like you have the ability to change it. You guys can do whatever the fuck you want. So change it, you know. Uh, And nobody does that. They just, they, they sit on their hands and say, well, that's how it is. It's like, well, whose fucking fault is that? You know? So
1: another interesting thing, I think a lot of people that have been in your shoes in a way where they have been doing whether whatever career it is, and they want to get into the dog or animal training aspect what did you do? Because obviously, like I said, I knew you were, I got to be exposed to your world and not every operator cares about being a dog trainer or handler, but what did you do? What was valuable to you or where did you go to learn your dog education? So that way you got to come back in and do the job that you did and do what you do now as a dog trainer.
2: So it was really a combination of, of all on the job stuff. Um, you know, I, I looked at at every dog academy and, and training seminar and, and different certification process that uh, that that seemed like it was at least somewhat viable out there, and, and none of them, when I looked at the finished product, said, "Yeah, that that's what I want to be, you know, or that's who I want to be, or that's the skill set I want to have, you know." So what I did, uh, and and I do this really with everything in life, whether it's business, whether it's fucking jujitsu, shooting, you know, whatever it is, is that I, I find the people that that are doing uh, what I want to do, how I want to do it. Uh, and, and I bug them, uh, in, until, um, until I can learn every fucking thing I can learn from them. Um, you know, and to me that that's a far better recipe for success than, uh, you know, trying to, um, uh, you know, garner a, a bunch of pieces of paper that say I have this certification and that certification, blah, blah, blah. And I can tell you as a business owner having hired a number of guys with, uh, on a Tom Clancy level of, uh, uh, or their, their resumes read like a goddamn Tom Clancy novel that I didn't find particularly competent, uh, in the skill set that I would have thought that they would have been. And, and on the transverse people that basically didn't have a fucking resume that were, um, just wildly gifted, uh, you know, at, at, at being a phenomenal dog trainer, uh, and everything in between. But, um, so, you know, to your question, I, I did as much as I could. Uh, with as many people as I could that that I saw as as doing it the way that I I thought it should be done or, or the way that I wanted to emulate, and then I learned I learned everything I could from as many people as possible, whether it was you know Wayne Dodge or Don Blair or Mike Subtle uh, or any of the other uh, b- business professionals that have been doing it far fucking longer than I have, uh, you know that that I see and I say, yeah, you know what that 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 guy is doing it right, uh, you know, and to me that that's that's how you get there. I mean, to me, it's no different than. You know, again, we'll use we'll use martial arts as an example is that, you know, find the guy who who is successful, you know, who who's doing whatever it is that you want to do the way that you wanna do it. You know, so in this case, look, look for any of the jujitsu guys out there like J- a guy like John Donaher, right, who uh, you know, has coached uh Gordon Ryan and George St. Pierre and, and a host of other guys who uh are arguably, you know, the best in the world, especially Gordon Ryan. I mean, I, I don't think you can Uh, you could, you could even, uh, try to argue that he's not the the best grappler in the fucking world, uh, you know, who, who studied under him. So like, instead of going to, you know, this Gracie Jiu Jitsu school, because it has this name and this master certification program, if you attain this certain level of, of belt hood, like, I'd rather train with, with the guy who has trained the people that I think are the best in the world, uh, and, and do it how I think it should be, should be done. So, um, it's been a, a culmination of, of taking the same approach, uh, that I took when I first started out is just working with and training with, uh, anyone and and everyone that I could, that, uh, that I thought, uh, were good at what they did. And, and when I looked at the finished product, I was like, yeah, that that's how I want to be. And,
1: uh, and stuck to them
2: like glue and, and got all I, all I could out of them.
1: No. And that's, you know, it's funny cause I had, you know, growing up in the dog world, I would gravitate to, like you just said, the ones who, I admired, the ones who I looked at and said, that makes sense to me, that works for me. And it was more than just uh, reading a book or reading something online or a video. I Those were good, you know, add-ons, but getting hands dirty, being there, going through it, struggling, tinkering, whatever you want to call it, really pushes you over the edge and gets you... Um, better at that skill set, you know, and it's, it's a important aspect to not forget that you have to do it by being hands on. You gotta, like I say, gotta get down and dirty and feel it. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, no different than say police when they, uh, you know, first get on with the department, like, you know, where they really learn the, the essence of the job is the on the job training with somebody who really knows what the fuck they're doing, you know? Um, it, you know, and to me like you know, and I'm not picking on Tom Rose or Starmark or any of the other academies out there. Uh, I, I think, you know, there is a need for for institutions such as those for people to to get their foot in the door and, and start somewhere. Um, you know, but when I I view that as the police academy, whereas apprenticing under somebody where you're working with them day in, day out and, and training dogs to the finished product that, that you're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, is, is the equivalent of the on the job training. And if you, if you, I mean, you were a cop, right? A- ask any fucking police officer, like, what did you learn in the academy versus what you learned in, in OJT for three months, six months, a year, however long it was like, there is no fucking comparison. You know, it's the same, same way with, with SEAL training, right? It's like, you know, buds is, is the training pipeline, you know, as is SQT. But if you look at what you learn in that, you know, almost year period, uh, or actually over a year period, you know, all said and done versus what you learn in your first platoon, like there's no fucking comparison, you know? And so to me that that's where you get, get the most bang for your buck is by, is by working with hand in hand, one-on-one, uh, with people who, uh, who are doing it. And I will say that I was, um, unusually fortunate, uh, in being able to do that with, with some of the, uh, the most brilliant and talented folks in the industry. And, and, you know, I will, I will never, uh, you know, take credit for that or, or say anything other than, uh, I just, I got really fucking lucky to be able to work with, with some really, really phenomenal dog trainers one-on-one early on in my career. And, and, uh, you know, that really laid the the foundation for me to be able to, to get to where I am now.
1: So who were your standouts? Who were you drawn to, uh, in those, when you went through Yeah,
2: the, yeah the, the, three main guys, like I said, Wayne Dodge, Mike Subtle, and and Don Blair, those three guys, uh, kind of from, from the, the full gamut of the things that I was interested in, which is breeding and genetics, i.e. Mike Subtle, not to take anything away from, from his training, cause he's a goddamn good trainer too. Uh, you know, Wayne and, and the, the, the presence and bite work and, uh, kind of relationship and psychology behind the interaction, uh, with the dual purpose dog, primarily on the patrol side. And, and, you know, I, I, to this day, like I've not met anybody who, who I feel like understands, uh, a dog's mind when it's in, in aggression, uh, as, as well as he does and, and his ability to, to, to teach it and explain it, I think is, uh, is, is second to none, uh, on the detection side, uh, and even, uh, from some tracking elements, I think Don Blair is, is one of the, the brightest minds in the, in the game as well. And and for me, you know, those were the three primary things that I was interested in, uh, which, I mean, frankly, let's be honest, I Matt's, mean, that's the bulk of the working canine industry too. But, uh, you know, but those three guys were, were instrumental in, uh, And really taking me under their wing and doing a lot of the things that, uh. Uh, that they did, and the manner with which they did that, that developed uh, all of my skill sets that way, um, <clears throat> that in conjunction with not being afraid to to screw things up, make mistakes, and learn the hard way on my own in the instances where where i wasn 't with uh you know one of those one of those guys, but
1: oh yeah, no, Don, I had Don on here a couple episodes ago, and uh you know he and I are friends, and I was actually just in Ohio doing a uh, seminar there for a lot of the uh, sport people. And it's fun to watch, uh, you know, Don go from all the stuff that me and you know him from to working in the sport community, even though there's a lot of, um, there's similarities in detection, but it's a totally different kind of uh, mindset. And I want to say the word's not relaxed, but it's, it it turns it in for, for, I say, pressure in the sense of life or death in certain cases to pressure of just a competition, uh, watching somebody who's, who's done it in that way, go to the sport community and share the knowledge that he has, uh, like Don does. And, um, it, it's, it's fun to watch, you know, when he and I catch up at seminars and things like that, as we both kind of go down some of these same paths now, um, he's always out there in front of me. So I, I take, it's like you, I take my lessons watching what Don does and, And some of the other ones out there too, but uh, yeah, he's one of the good ones. And another one, I think uh, I was talking to Wayne one time, uh, I mean, Bob Bailey, you guys, uh, I was very envious of the time when you guys were out there in the sense of some of those subject matter experts that you guys uh, pulled into the program when you were doing it, just because, you know, I look at, you know, Bob Bailey's another one that's when it comes to communication um, is hard to beat. You know he's definitely been there, done that, and then does such a good job of training. Uh, you know those of us who are willing to listen and learn. You know some of the key important aspects of how to communicate with a dog.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, mentioning Don Bailey, we got you know just again. I, I was in a very fortunate position when I was uh, you know out at the at the unit in that in that role. Uh, we did a, a cross training trip uh, in Holland, uh, we're there for a couple of weeks working with, you know, almost every fucking special operations or high level canine unit in all of Europe converged for this, you know, two week conference. Uh, and, and Bob was there for that also. And, and it was really, really neat to be able to, um, you know, sit through presentations and, uh, you know, seminar style courses From these different units that would kind of, you know, walk through, you know, who they are, what they do, what their philosophies are, how they're using their dogs, lessons learned. uh, And a lot of them had dogs and would demonstrate some of the capabilities. And I mean, you know, for me, like there's not a better learning experience than to see, you know, people who don't even speak the same language in some cases. Uh, you know, all converging and in all different types of operational environments and talking. But to be able to go and, and sit through that, you know, couple week course with a guy like Bob, uh, with Wayne there also, you know, and, and go out at night and, and talk for hours over over dinner afterwards of all the things, you know, it was, it was just amazing. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, not including him in the list was not necessarily intentional. I just, you know, when I, th- when I think about the amount of time that, that I spent with him, even though that two weeks was jam packed and, and, you know, overwhelmingly uh helpful in, in terms of, of being resourceful for me to to draw from. Uh I, I just I spent so much more time with the other three guys that uh you know that those those for sure stand out as, as being uh kind of the foundation benchmarks. But yeah, agreed. I mean Bob is kind of the uh the godfather next yeah. to to BF himself. I think he's more relevant, <laughs> frankly, just yeah. because because he, he was kind of the, the the bridge or the liaison from from the old world to the new
1: world. Sure. So speaking of lessons learned, what would you say was an important lesson learned uh, that you developed as a trainer when you were with NSW? Because we both know there's some unique um, requirements or integration with the dog you know there is my takeaways but what was something that you went? Okay, that's definitely a good lesson learned that I'm going to apply in dog training moving forward uh during your time with Teams.
2: So for, for me uh I mean without question um it was a it was a combination I would say both equally as as impactful but on the detection side just generally speaking uh you know just in terms of learning thresholds and and how how air moves in real world environments and how, how big of an impact environmental factors have. And, uh, you know, the dog's conditioning and, and, and all of those things, just really putting it into real world practice day in, day out where, where we were really doing some challenging things with them, you know, where we would do, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 mile. in in some cases, hikes, you know, using air quotes, you know, with the dogs where five or six odors along a 10 or 12 mile path at, you know, several thousand feet of elevation uh, when it's hot out and seeing how the dogs react. And just really, you know, being in a position in an environment where, you know, we were working with dogs that were at the the 1% upper echelon level of, of even within the working dog uh you know confines of of being you know truly elite uh, even amongst really really good dogs and and putting them in, in, in you know having the flexibility and, and the time and resources and training areas to be able to put them in an environment where you know we could really push the envelope with them and see how capable Uh, They could become if if we really put all of that ass and kind of walk the walk. And and we did. And a lot of times I think, you know, we had, uh, you know, some other other groups come, you know, work with us. And they'd be like, you guys, you're just putting on a show, right? Like, you guys don't normally fucking do this. Like, yeah, we do. Like, you know, we're out here, you know, physically kicking ourselves and the dogs and the dick day in, day out. Uh, to to see how far we can we can go with them. So on the detection side, that was a, a huge lesson learned. Just a lot of good real time feedback uh, because we were actually able to do it. You know, we we weren't con- constricted by. And, and you can, I think, uh, empathize with this more than most people is that. You know, when you when you're doing it and running a business, and you're you know you're at home, you, you've got you, you family, you've got business stuff, you've got you know other irons in the fire, fire business wise, that are all taking up your time. You know, I was very fortunate in that you know my family stayed stayed here in Texas, and I went out there. Um, you know, and, and so I had no distractions, you know, I, I mean, I could really dive head first into it and, and just, you know, do it day in, day out and not have to worry about everything else for that, that period of time that I was there. And that was, that was extremely valuable. So was on the detection side, on the patrol side, um, the, the repetition of being able to work, you know, in the upwards of a dozen really, really high level, incredibly fucking strong dogs uh, was, was absolutely instrumental in, in bringing my decoy skills to, to an, an absolutely different level. Overwhelmingly so because Wayne was there again to, to be able to work with him day in, day out, working these dogs hour after hour after hour, and and then talk about it, you know, afterwards and, uh, and, and watch the dogs develop and, and watching even myself develop, uh, in, in terms of those skills, you know, there's, there's, few places on the planet where there's a stable of of that level of dogs all in one concentrated area and not a bunch of other bullshit to have to deal with, uh, you know, raising puppies or subpar dogs or, you know, dogs that, you know, are some departments that shouldn't be there or what have you. It's, you know, we, we had kind of the full autonomy and control to be able to, to select some really, really high magnitude dogs. And, uh, And so being in that environment of, and and again, you know, watching dogs, you know, where we would set up scenarios where, uh, you know, the the guys would be patrolling with their dogs and we'd be set up, you know, hundreds of yards up into uh, the military crest of a a mountain or, or in a uh, you know off a, an offshoot of a knoll down front, you know whatever like we we would set these scenarios up based on wind and really push the envelope of of where the dogs could pick us up or not and and what have you and in getting to to do kind of these f t x or you know final training exercise type full mission profile deals where uh, you know the dogs are patrolling for miles, and they pick us up, and and then come to a long bite session with them, and then they go, you know, do some some route clearance on the way out, and and hit a couple of explosive odors or, or whatever, and and just being able to do like those those legit super realistic training scenarios just over and over and over with you know ten, eleven, twelve really really high caliber dogs and motivated handlers like there's just there's no fucking better place to be in terms of, of being able to learn uh, those two skill sets specifically. Um, and, and one, one more thing, a third thing, there's just cause it kind of popped into my mind. It's just the the importance of, of the trust element between the handler and dog. Not that I didn't realize how important it was before, but to see it day in day out where, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're going into a dark warehouse or, Uh, You know, it's it's a a dim lit alley and there's a weird noise or or something like that. And the dog trusting, you know, when when you're rappelling and, uh, you know, at 14,000 feet elevation or, you know, riding in fucking helicopters where there's 10 other dudes packed in there or, uh, you know, doing evasive maneuvers and aircraft and and what have you. The the things that they were doing there are are so above and beyond what most even working dogs are, are typically exposed to. Um, you know, in conjunction with just how strong the dogs that we were selecting, uh, and, and seeing how big of an impact it it played uh by by the handlers first and foremost, having just a really, really strong, good and, and most importantly, positive relationship, you know, uh with their dogs and how big of an impact and, and carrying it forward and then going and working with police departments, doing seminars for for, you know, the subsequent several years after that, and seeing, you know, how how many problems Really stemmed from two two main things uh, that, that I really picked up there it was number one was the genetics of the dog that you know you, you can't teach or outtrain that if it's not the right fucking dog you're always going to be limited by uh, or capped by the genetic potential of that dog. And, and if, if what you need is above that, I don't give a shit how good of a trainer you are or uh, how, how much of a decoy wizard you think you might be. Like if the dog doesn't have it, they don't have it. And that's both on the detection side and especially on the patrol side. Uh, but then the other thing was just how how many police canine handlers out there seem to have a a less than ideal relationship with their dog and, and how big of an impact that played in their training and their certification and in their real world deployments where, you know, something as simple as, and I still see it to this day where, you know, you're doing bite work and the handler comes up and the dog is whining and pulling and spinning his ass around and whatever. And, and that doesn't register to the handler, to the trainer as a fucking problem. Um, you know, and, and it's like, you know, if, if, if something as simple as that is going unnoticed, um, you know, and, and me knowing how important it is that, you know, the, the response needs to be when you go up there that the dog, you know, his, his tail wags harder, he pushes in, like he feels emboldened by you coming up because you're a fucking team. And, and, and in his mind, the cavalry just showed up, not this dude that's going to fucking hand me my ass just showed up and, and what can I do to stay on the bite, but avoid being anywhere near him. Like, just something that simple uh you know how how lost that seems to 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 be on on a lot of working teams out there um you know we're, we're kind of some the summation of of the lessons that i that i really took from there and and realized just how uh remarkably important they are
1: you no know, and it's funny because my questions i had was Uh, what are the core the core components for canine relationship and the next one was genetics so and what i'll and i'll bring it back to what are or what would be core components in a good canine relationship because we both know a lot of times like you have teamdog.pet which is your website where you do a lot of your uh, dog training but it's very pet and civilian related but we can both say in many cases that pet owner has a better understanding or a better relationship with their dog than a lot of you know professional canine handlers do, and some of that stems for a number of different reasons, but one of the ones that always kind of annoyed me was oh you oh that dog just when you get home, leave him as, leave him his kennel, don't interact with him, you just take him to work you don't you know there's no social component um he's a working dog, throw him in that box and leave him alone. Um, and I'm like, you're totally missing out on a relationship that you have to have. And in when many cases, saves your life. And I said, if you talk to most military handlers, they're going to tell you the best relationship they ever had with their dog is when they were deployed. Because when they were deployed, they lived with that dog 24-7 versus it being kept in the kennel due to military rules when they were, when they were back at home station. So what would you say, you know, bringing it back to the question, the core components in a good canine relationship?
2: Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, not to say what you said, but I mean, it's, it's essentially exactly that. And that, uh, you know, the, the element of, um, you know, the, the, the backbone I guess of, of the relationship that exists stems on interaction, you know, a dog's, uh, currency is, is interaction, you know, and that's the one thing I mean, like, look at at homeless people, like some of the most inspiring, you know, canine and human relationships I've ever seen uh, are homeless people with their dogs for the exact same reasons. Like they're with that, that animal 24 seven and you can see the bond and relationship. Uh, it's, it's, it's truly remarkable. Um, you know, and so, you know, when, when something as simple as that is blaringly obvious, uh, you look at um, you know, how how people then don't realize that or don't take advantage of that and, and don't understand that uh you know that that component is gonna drive, you know, primarily how how well they do with their dog is is you know a little bit baffling. Now um I, I would also say that you see that same thing with, with human beings and in raising kids. Is that, you know, the difference between, say, and I think dads are probably more guilty of it than, than moms typically, but go to a, a park, uh, you know, and you see uh, a, a guy standing there, or sitting there on a bench, staring at his phone, fucking around on Facebook while his kids are, are swinging and chasing each other around versus the dad whose phone is in the truck. And he's running around playing, playing tag and and swinging and, and pushing, and running, chasing his kids around and all that, you know, to, to, so when you get home, it's what did you do today after, after work? Well, I took the kids to the park. In, in both instances, that's true. But to the child, what's the difference between those two? It's fucking enormous, you know? Uh, and, and so to me, it's that same thing is that, you know, dogs are so much like children that way. Um, you know, that, that it, it makes a huge, huge difference just by spending time doing things that may seem mundane or, or trivial to you uh, that are that are absolutely um, just crucially important to do it.
1: I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canine's Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find and it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer, SDT, and we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input, Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the search dog timer
0: app on the Apple app store. Canines talking sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club Channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT, Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer, Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week, immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canines Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month.
1: Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable set wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels, that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. Or like I said, go to FordK9.com. go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. So we were talking about that relationship aspect with handlers, and... Another big aspect in regards to that that makes that really good is communication. What are some of the important things in communication and training that you look at as critical? I know, and we, you and I are both fans of utilizing the marker based system. Um, talk about that a little bit and the other aspects of communication when it comes to training that's important.
2: Sure. So I, I think it kind of dovetails on to, um, you know, that. that- bond and, and trust and, you know, spending time and engagement. And, and one thing I want to kind of clarify on that is that it's, it's k- kind of an orders of magnitude, I think. And, and I'll, I'll say the same thing about communication is that, you know, sitting, having a dog sitting in a crate next to you, uh, say while you watch a movie, uh, it is not as good as, you know, teaching the dog to out through, um, you know, or, or te- teaching and out and, and engaging, like say when a dog is on a tug toy and, and engaging with them, tug, let go, you get it back again, tug, let go. You know, that, that engagement just as as one example is going to be more beneficial than sitting in the crate, but the crate next to you while you're eating or watching a movie or what, what have you or just in the house where they can hear you, smell you, whatever is better than them being 50 feet behind your house in a kennel run by themselves. Um, <clears throat> communication is, is, similar that way. And, and I, I use the, the playground um, kind of analogy that way is that, you know, the, the end result is that they, the kids went to the park, you know, but to the, to the kid from their perspective, you know, the, the value that they held in, in that parent chasing them, playing tag, you know, pushing them on a swing, running around like jackasses, what have you is, is, is a night and day difference. Communication similarly is that, you know, even if you're communicating. Poorly, that's better than not communicating at all to a certain extent. Um, you know, I, I will say that, and then this will probably sound a little contradictory is that uh, no training is better than bad training, but you know, some decent communication so that the dog at least has some understanding of what you're trying to, to get across is going to be better than the dog being completely clueless as, as to what you're trying to, to communicate. Um, obviously, clear cut communication is the most important. And what I have found is, is that you know, j- just like every other example I've given, is that putting yourself in their shoes first uh, is, is key to being able to do that. Because I may think what I'm trying to communicate is is very understandable or crystal clear or easy for them to pick up. They may have no fucking clue what I'm trying to to communicate to them. And so realizing that that you know they don't think in a language is something that's hard to even wrap, wrap your mind around. Right? Is that you know, like you and I are. I mean, just think about the amount of information that, that you and I have communicated in the last thirty, forty minutes of us talking. It's it's massive. Uh, when you, when you think during the day, you think in a in a language, right? So a, a dog does not even think in a language. It's hard to imagine what your day would be like where you can't even do that, right? So everything. Is, is an A plus B equals C association with, with the way that their mind works. Yes, they have some ability to, to logic and reason in, in small ways in certain circumstances, but largely everything that, that, that they know and, and what they think is based off an association. You know, and it's either good, bad, or neutral, essentially. So, um, you know, in, in keeping that in mind, now you must be very hyper aware about every single fucking association that you're making. And, and I think, um, you know, where, where I don't think I know, I mean, where, where we usually get ourselves in trouble is is making associations that we don't want to make inadvertently, uh, you know, is, is the biggest problem when it comes to behavioral shit. Or even when, when you know, you're trying to, to train a dog to do something and it's not going well, we'll take outing as an example. I mean, how many handlers have you seen that have made a really negative association with them walking up to their dog? Uh, you know, to, to get them to out, you know, because it's, I walk up to the dog, I clip a leash to him and then I crack him over the fucking head or fry him with a knee collar or clothesline him with a, with a prong collar because he won't let go. Cause I haven't even taught him what the fuck let go means. Uh, you know, but he's making that association and a lot, and a lot of handlers don't, don't even realize that that's an association that's being made. They just think that they're being a stubborn pain in the ass, um, you know and and so thinking of it through through the dog's lens uh is the key uh, from my perspective in terms of communication and and then you know being hyper aware of the associations you're making uh ensuring that your timing is is, is as precise as you can possibly make it because again to the dog that's their understanding is that if you're a second and a half later on your, uh, late on your mark, well, you didn't mark the behavior you thought you did, you know, to the dog. It's, you know, it's what they, uh, they perceive, you know, one of the, uh, common things in, in the detection world, which I know you can uh, relate to enormously, you know, people think that the dog knows that we're looking for marijuana or explosives or, or whatever, is that no, that the, the dog knows and is expecting to be rewarded for whatever you've previously rewarded him for finding. He has no concept of drugs being illegal or explosives being bad and dangerous or, or whatever, you know, so if there's a bunch of other shit contaminated on there that you haven't proofed off, then that that's what the dog is is recognizing, you know, and so j- just thinking of it from that perspective of, you know, how is the dog viewing this, and, and it's, uh, in some cases, similar to people, in many cases it's very different. Uh, you know how how they're gonna gonna perceive that. So when you, when you're communicating with a dog in summary to try to bring this uh, tail kite or kite tail back around um, is is you know be, Uh, empathetic to the fact that the dog, you know, learns through primarily through association, doesn't think in a language is going to make that association with certain things, be very exact on your timing uh, and be ultra, ultra consistent, especially early on every single fucking time it gets marked and rewarded. And very quickly, um, you know, I think you'll, people will find that, that the dogs uh, learn, learn in a a pretty dramatic fashion that way. That that's been my experience with it. Uh, When I see handlers, trainers, owners in, in really any capacity, whether it's the highest level of government or military service, or just your average everyday pet owner with the fucking golden doodle. Um, You know, when there's a real shitty relationship uh, there, there's, you know, not a lot of bond and trust and really, really piss poor communication. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, I I think if you look at, at any aspect of your life, you know, whether it's a coach with athletes, a teacher with students, uh, you know, a husband and wife, or a, a parent unit and their kids, uh, a business owner and his employees. I mean, all, all of those examples. Uh, you know, w- when communication is really, really good, people understand what the expectations are. You know, it, everything's kind of firing on on all cylinders. You know, if if you don't tell your your students what assignment is due and when it's due, and then you you they get in trouble and fail for for not doing it, what is that going to lead to? Frustration. You know what? What does frustration build resentment towards whoever is frustrating them? Uh, you know, uh, which which is going to lead to them defying it and not doing what you want. So, I think a lot of times people um, undervalue how important communication is from that from that aspect. It's ju- it's not just getting the point across and, and letting the dog know what you want. It's also diffusing. Frustration and resentment towards you uh, for for undesirable outcomes taking place when they don't understand why or or how to fix it.
1: Yeah, no. The uh, one of the things, of course, I always say is you get what you reinforce. You know, and you have to pay attention to or have knowledge of what you are actually reinforcing. And then, of course, in detection. Uh, just like you brought up, there's a lot of those things that you have to build in the beginning, of those controls, so that way you know what, as best you can, what the dog is actually taking in when you reinforce, whether that be the typical, I'm going to chuck the ball to the uh, spot or walk up and deliver the food there, or using your condition reinforcer, your marker, and do that. Now, like you brought up, you know, the, the marker obviously is not new. It's just in certain dog circles, it's newer and uh, you know, there's camps on both sides and so on and so forth. But like I tell everybody, you know, the, the nice thing about the marker of course is your ability to deliver those precision uh, timing for communication. The downside is the precision, (laughs) because if you're not careful uh, you know, like you said, what did the dog take in when they heard the signal? um and you know a lot of people get all scared what if i do it wrong and all that kind of stuff and i always tell them i'm like believe me even when we try to do it in traditional ways we still make mistakes mistakes is is still part of that process and it's not the end of the world and actually using a marker it's actually easier to unscrew things because you can again precisely mark the desired which you want much easier than trying to like I said, chuck a ball or run in and deliver with your hand or the stuff I like is the dog finds odor, you know, looks at the handler walks away. And this is, you know, various programs. But then the handler walks back to the odor and I'm like, do you think your dog actually even gives a shit about the odor at that point? They're, they're like, hey, f- okay, food here, whatever, you know, but the human aspect's going – well, I delivered it at the odor. So the dog knows that's what's happening. And I'm like, yeah, it's not what the dog's thinking at that point. So, but if it makes us feel good as handlers or trainers then i knock yourself out. Um, but, and as we, you know, uh, go into that, we have to start with a very good foundation and you brought it up earlier, which was genetics. Um, you know, you and I are both very passionate about that aspect. Uh, the genetics is the whole starting point, you know, without the proper genetics, um, and one of the broad stroke things I've been looking at, and you know, the podcast has been more focused on this year, is that development of young dogs and puppies to become whatever it is we want them to become, whether it be professional detection dog, sport dog, uh, dual purpose dogs, what have you. Um, but talk a little bit about the genetics, and then we'll kick it over to you know why we've struggled here in the United States to. Have a process to raise a dog to the working dog? Sure.
2: Um, I, I would like to take one, one quick step back and just the, the, one, the one thing that, uh, that I find, uh, if, if you kind of let this principle drive your communication and training, irrespective of genetics and everything else, is, is just think of one fundamental pro, uh, principle, which is you're trying to, to communicate and reinforce and, and teach the dog that it's their actions that determine the outcome you know and and when when that dog understands that learns that and and behaves you know according to to that principle then that's when you can shape really whatever the fuck you want and and you can you can communicate just about whatever you want to them so I, I just, i'll i'll leave it at that but I, I think that that's it's it's an it's an easy thing to if you just think of it from that standpoint if if every training session you do that one very simple principle drives that uh, and then that's kind of your goal in every session is to, is to make the dog understand what you did, got you what you want, didn't have shit to do with me, didn't have shit to do with the environment, didn't have shit to do with the car driving by it. Like all of the, the white noise is, is completely fucking irrelevant. Uh, it, it's a hundred percent your actions and, and, you know, I mean, that's how society needs to be. You know, we've gotten away from that largely in society and you see the problems that, uh, that entail, but, uh, at any rate, gen- genetics, Um, you know, to me that it's another thing that that gets lost. I think a lot of times with, uh, with units, departments, um, even, you know, a lot of times pet dog folks is they assume like, well, I have a Rottweiler and Rottweilers were bred for X. And so, you know, my dog is this, you know, and to me, like I I have a very different viewpoint and that, you know, for anybody, I know you can, you can relate as, as well as anybody, you know, for anybody that's ever purposefully and selectively bred dogs for a, a very distinct or specific working purpose can tell you that even when you are taking the absolute best genetic crop that you can possibly get your fucking hands on and breeding it to an equally impressive specimen, it's still incredibly frustratingly difficult to, to maintain a level of consistency and reproduce even as good as their parents, let alone fucking better. Um, you know and and so given that now if if you're taking none of that into consideration you're not being selective at all in terms of actually actively breeding a dog for its intended purpose by using you know athletic specimens that (laughs) that genetically do that job at the highest level you can possibly find Um, you know you are sorely mistaken if you think that that shit is going to happen by accident because it's not going to and 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 for you know the last I'd say probably seventy or eighty years, um, you know I'd say post post World War II is is when at least from from the way I see it is that people really stopped breeding for uh, on a larger scale you know for for anything other than just looks or because it's this breed or or what have you is that you know back when when having a dog was more of a luxury they had to you know in, in many cases excuse me, had to serve some sort of purpose, you know, whether it was, you know, ratting in barns or, uh, you know, de- defending fucking farmer's properties or what have you. it just, as we've gotten more technologically advanced and the need for dogs in most capacities ha- have diminished in, in, uh, enormously the, the, you know, standards for breeding all of these breeds of dogs has, has taken a nosedive drastically. And so, um, the The way I kind of like to explain it is you know at, at this point there's kind of a, a western society domesticated house dog and and that is the breed um you know and the quote unquote breed that pe- that people um you know reference their dogs as is is more of a fucking paint job at this point um is that they're all kind of the same they're all nutless. You know, spineless, you know, bordering on useless other than their their companion aspect, um, you know, in terms of working ability, and, and people may hear that and think that that's an insult or whatever. It's not. I, I mean that in, in a strictly working sense. Uh, there's absolutely something to be said for companionship and uh, and you know just have, having a dog in your house to be able to to hang out with and whatever that i'm not discrediting that but from a working standpoint most dogs nowadays that are just hanging out in people's backyards are useless by comparison to to their intended purpose and uh and, and so you know because of that it, it's very very difficult to find dogs with with the proper genetics to do that type of work cuz so few people are are really selectively breeding it's like i've got this you know Doberman or this Pitbull or this fucking whatever. I've got a Malinois and you've got a Malinois. You know, we should, we should breed them so we can have some pups, you know, because it's the best dog I've ever had. And it's like, well, compared, compared to what, you know, compared to the the fucking Skipper Key that you had growing up. Uh, I mean, that that's not really a high bar, you know? And so there, there's just such a, a flood of uh, substandard uh, specimens genetically that are out there for every breed. You know, if if you like, like I've got a UKC book of dogs, uh, that was published I think in nineteen twenty one. You know, and and reading that contrast to, you know, what you see today's day and age, like it it's just an abomination. Uh and it's sad. Uh, you know, now I will say I, I do not to get political uh on on anything, but I, I do subscribe to the hey, you do you and if that's what you want to do, like I'm not gonna tell you it, it shouldn't be able to be done or it should be illegal or there needs to be, you know, licensing or whatever. Like fuck that. This isn't Russia or China. Like if you want to breed substandard dogs and deal with them and take responsibility for them, knock yourself the fuck out. I mean, taking responsibility for them is the key. Uh, you know, I, I do see a flooding of of shitty dogs that that are filling shelters, and that's the one thing where I think. Uh, there's a a big disconnect uh, with people. And and I don't think the answer is legislation or statutes or laws or permits or, or licensing or anything like that. I think just like in in most areas of capitalism, you vote with your your fucking wallet. And if, if people would stop buying shitty dogs, people would stop breeding shitty dogs. Um, You know, and the, the adopt don't shop thing is that, you know, again, that that's a a double edged sword and that, um you know if if you if you keep trying to empty shelters you know where where shelters ultimately are are a business i mean people don't like to to think of it that way but they are uh, you know I, I want you to think about uh the any humane society or any dog shelter that that's funded by donations and and grants and and whether it's federal state local funding you know budgets from from uh municipalities what have you is that you know if if the shelter is empty and stays empty that's a problem for those people. You know, they're all out of jobs. The facility goes away. There, there's no real incentive for them to to empty their shelters. Of course, that's going to be the the quote unquote visible goal that that uh, that's out there. But do, do you really think that, that those shelters want to be empty and and all those people, especially when you when you get at higher levels of ASPCA and HSUS and and what have you? Like those are multi billion dollar uh, you know, or, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars annually and over the span of, of decades. It's a lot of fucking money involved in, in those, uh, you know, high-level high, high level positions. I mean, those people are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, of salaries. And so there, there's, of course, somewhat of an ulterior motive. Uh, I think, what, like with a lot of things, that, you know, the road to is paved in good intentions is that it started out, uh, you know, with, with very good intentions and, you know, not wanting to see, uh, you know, situations like what you see in India with, you know, stray dog populations that are just absurd, uh, you know, where, where dogs are starving to death. And no, I I don't think that's a good alternative. What, what my point in saying and bringing all of that up is, is that, you know, that the people have the, the ability to make things change. And, and if they stop buying, you know, $150 fucking pit bulls in, in Craigslist ads, um you know that that wind up in shelters you know 6 months later because they can't handle the dog and it's it's a combination of shitty training and poor genetics and and whatever else then then that goes away you know because people aren't going to breed dogs if they can't get rid of them you know the the only reason people do it is to either replace their dogs and then have a you know a pup or two or because they're making a little bit of extra fucking cash in in classified ads so uh, if that goes away, you know, the, the, the supply and demand thing, uh, you know, is every bit as relevant in, in the backyard dog breeding world as it is anywhere else. You know, if everybody stops drinking fucking Coca-Cola, they go out of business and it's not available anymore. You know, so, uh, we have the ability to change it. It's just that, that people don't, and it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle that exists and that, you know, people breed really, really terrible dogs. Genetically, nerve wise, drive wise, et cetera. Uh, you know, and then people have a, a ton of fucking issues, and you got people that, you know, are, are novice trainers at best, working with really, really challenging dogs, uh, you know, running their fucking head into the wall and then ultimately ending up in shelters. And it's just this vicious cycle. So stop buying them. You know, uh, to, to me, it's not adopt, don't shop. It's like to me, I, I would say it's, it's the opposite, is it be ultra selective like only buy a dog that is a a pure and true representation of whatever it is that you want. I'm not even going to say of that breed, it's whatever that you want. Like if you don't want a dog that was, that was bred to to hunt fucking bears and lions, then don't fucking buy one. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, if you're not being selective in, in how you're going about choosing a, a candidate, uh, then you're just setting yourself up for, for failure and, and you're, uh, you know, continuing the the hamster wheel of, of shitty dog genetics that exist. Um, when it comes to working standpoint, kind of the same thing is that, uh, you know, I, I know I have, I'm sure you have too. I mean, every uh, dog trainer that works with police departments and operational units uh, that I know of has run into the same, same issues is that, you know, so there's some departments out there that you'll, you'll go and, you know, try to do a two or three day seminar with or what have you and, and. You know, you've, you know, at least for me, like the first thing I do is kind of get get my hands on every one of them and evaluate and see see the handler, see him work the dog, watch the dog work. I, I want to know what I'm working with, um, you know. And, and from there, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times I see dogs that just it's not a training issue. Um, it, it's, it's, this this particular dog just has no business being a police dog. He's not a police dog uh, or a detection dog or, or whatever it is, you know. And so. Um, there's only so much you can do with that. I mean, the, the best trainer in the world can't out-train genetics. It's just like with working out. Like, you can't uh, you can out-train a shitty diet and you can't out-eat not working out. Uh, you, you know, like, and it's the exact same thing with, with that, is that if, if if the genetics are the foundation, which you, you can't argue that they're not, I mean, that, that in and of itself is going to determine what level you have the potential or possibility to, to attain. You cannot exceed a dog's genetics, uh, no different than a human being can. Like, if, if, you know, physically your max bench is 405 pounds, like, and, and, and physically and, and with training, and like, that is the absolute maximum ability that your body genetically can can allow, you're not going to go higher than that. I mean, if, if there was limitless potential, people would be bench pressing 30,000 pounds. Uh, you know, people that work out for 40 years straight, they get to a point where they just can't get any fucking stronger, no matter what they do. You know, they work with coaches and fucking nutritionists and, I mean, doing every whiz-bang fucking thing that, that you can possibly think of. And that's just, that's the best they have. Uh You know, and, and dogs are, are creatures, they're, they're animals the same way human beings are. They're limited by their genetics also. So if you're not starting out with the very best genetic candidate that you can possibly get your hands on, uh, then, you, then you're then you limiting yourself, you know, and, and there's just, you know, there's no amount of training that can, uh, that can counteract that. And, and uh, you know, I think that's, that's one of those things that gets lost on. I mean, how many times you have people like, Hey, you know, I, uh, you know, can you teach my, my lab to be a, an, an attack dog or, you know, can you teach my fucking, uh, you know, whatever to, to detect drugs? And what, probably not, you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen him, but I can tell you like as hard as it is to find dogs when I'm, you know, looking, looking at and sifting through dogs that were bred, raised and trained for this specific job. And it's still hard to find ones that are good enough. No, like the chances of your, you know, fucking Akita in your backyard being a a legit fucking man stopper or a pretty fucking slim. Um, you know, but so, um, you know, to me that that's just really the, uh, the crux of the entire thing is that, is that genetics are, are the foundation with which, everything else is based off of no matter how good or bad of a trainer you are, you know, the the, genet- the, the genetics are going to set the stage for, for how you perform.
1: And how frustrating is it? I, I'm sure you see it the same way I do. These agencies or special operations programs or what have you get some specimens of dogs. I mean, exactly what we want, but then aren't allowed to breed it for stupid rules of well we can't make money or what have you and it wasn't about that it was we've got really good dogs here that meet the that fit the bill and if there was the right opportunity to breed that and keep that going versus keep do, you know doing what we do now which is go wherever we go overseas most cases to go get the dogs because they do do uh, the good breedings over there it's just frustrating to see that 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 mentality of oh we can't do anything with this dog we have yeah
2: I mean it's it's excruciating it's heartbreaking honestly I mean even even more than frustrating it's heartbreaking because and I've talked about this on uh, on a couple of dog uh, podcasts over the years is that you know it's it's another one of those unintended consequences that most people don't think about until you kind of lay it out and they're like oh shit I, yeah I, I can see why we're we're in the state that we're in which is you know back in the in the mid two thousands. It, it, I mean, you could you could go to Holland and find twenty just banger fucking PH ones or close to it or whatever that were you know two and a half three years old. No fucking quirky bullshit. Um, you know, no no broken teeth or fucking they're they're actually five and a half or they're only sixteen months or like there's none of that. Uh, you know, you you could find gobs and gobs of phenomenal dogs, and and some of it is lack of interest as the next generations get older, just like with here. You know, most, most kids growing up in, in suburban America don't want to learn to be a framer for a house or a bricklayer, uh, you know, or a, a fucking, uh, you know, an iron worker or a welder, you know, like they, they'd rather fucking invent the next TikTok and be worth $4 billion <laughs> and fuck around on Facebook. Like they just don't want to do that shit, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I, I get it. Like yeah. I was a kid once too. And if you can pick playing video games over shoveling dog shit, uh, when it's January, like, yeah, you're probably going to play video games um so that's part of it but uh, the, the biggest thing is that you know post nine eleven, when the the skyrocketing of of demand for detection and dual purpose patrol dogs um uh, you know just just exploded uh, you know we as a as a country as well as a lot of other uh allies that are that are in a kind of a similar position in terms of trying to, to fight terrorism and and regulate uh, their society and, and keep them between the lines from terrorist attacks uh, taking place is that, you know, that demand for, for dogs has, has gone up 100x. Uh, and, and so you have, you know, an overwhelming demand, but then you have every one of these dogs that, you know, is exactly what you're looking for genetically, and now you remove them from the gene pool. And so, so you've got thousands of, of the very best dogs in the world. Now, being used for that purpose, but not being bred, they're not replenishing the the pond, so to speak. So the pond is being overfished, right? And you see that, you know, in wildlife populations, same thing. That's why there's, there's tags and, hey, you, you can't kill males or you can only kill this age of female or, or what have you, is that there are, are limits and restrictions on what you can hunt so that you don't decimate fucking populations, we we as, as an industry never took that into account there there were no accommodations made for decimating the population of, of working dogs with absolutely no plan for infrastructure in terms of keeping that going and and it was fine for a generation or two worth of dogs as you're saying you know now 20 years later now there's there are no fucking dogs available by comparison it's Incredibly difficult to find the caliber of dog that you could find 20 years ago. I mean, it's almost impossible, Um, you know, and and it's and it and it is impossible to find them in anywhere near the same types of numbers. Uh, Like I said, there's, they're either 13 months old and and when they're four, they're going to be an absolute motherfucker because they're good enough at 13 Uh, or, or they're actually five and a half and their papers say that they're, you know, 27 months and, uh, you know, and go fuck yourself. Yeah. They got the um,
1: just for men painted on their face to hide the gray. Yeah. Yeah. Or,
2: (laughs) you know, or they've never been in a fucking crate and it's, you know, a WWE wrestling match and, and, you know, just there's, you know, weird quirky shit that, uh, you know, that you just didn't see nearly as much, uh, you know, back then. But, um, you know, so to answer your question, is it frustrating? Yes, it's heartbreaking because, you know, that the breed itself has suffered dramatically uh, because of it, because there's just no no accommodation being made. And, and I think, uh, you know, governments and, and units need to just not fucking worry about it uh, in, in that it's a very short-sighted approach to say, like, Well, if if you're breeding, you know, government property, you're making money off of it. It's like, clearly you've never bred dogs (laughs) if you think you're getting getting rich, you know, off off of making a breeding because you're not going to fucking retire off of that. Number two, this is a classic case of why do you give a fuck, You, you know, like, like, ultimately, like if one of your guys, because he works his ass off contributes to, you know, good working prospects to to an industry that you're depending on for our operational success, manages somehow to to moonlight and make a couple extra hundred or even a couple extra thousand dollars by working his ass off breeding a litter of, of pups and raising them up, and if he had any idea what it took to do that, who gives a shit? You know, like, is that really the worst fucking thing that could happen? I, I don't think it is. You know, and the and the fact that 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 they're so against that uh, is just fucking unbelievable. I mean, even if it was a a thing where you said, "Hey, if if you you know whatever money you make, it has to go back into the canine unit." Fuck whatever. I mean, there's got to be some kind of goddamn compromise because I do understand that. Like, if you just say, "Hey, anybody can breed and you can make money," and it's, and it's the floodgates are open, yeah, you're probably going to have some shitbirds that capitalize on that. And now they've got you know. Five hundred fucking pregnant females and, and a you know a puppy mill of fucking Malinois in their backyard. Those are going to be exceptions, though. I mean, most guys aren't going to do shit like that, um, you know. But but to me, ultimately, like you, you should let that fucking happen. And the fact that they don't is why we're at where we're at. You know, it's an unintended consequence that that people in that position, you know, who've never bred dogs, who've never gone on by trips, who, who don't understand the in- intricacies of how difficult it is uh, to to source quality animals that are, that are everything that they're going to need to be. Uh, you know, they just don't know any better. And so they have these policies that, that are a detriment and, uh, and it sucks.
1: Yeah, no. And, and last question I have that kind of dovetails off that is the raising of the dogs from puppy to that working dog age where we can start, you know, formally, uh, preparing that dog to be that resource and that asset that we need. Where where's our biggest or do, that you see our biggest uh, hang up and issue in the process of puppy to uh, working training adult? So I think it's twofold, uh,
2: and and I will say you know from experience, Jesus Christ, there's a finesse at that age that that is difficult, um, you know, and, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a lack of understanding and knowing you know, the the right things to do and the right time to do them. And, you know, there's such a a fragility at that window of time in a dog's life where not doing enough, you're not going to maximize their genetic potential and doing too much, you're going to ruin them. Um, You know, and, and that takes incredibly skilled uh, you know, dog people that, that really understand that balance, um, and, and apply it appropriately. And unfortunately, um, you know, that there's not very many people that really, truly understand, excuse me, how to do that. Right. Um, well, yeah, it's just, you know, um, and I'm, you know, I, have I've seen, you know, the, 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 shift from overseas and people trying to do it here and whatever. And, and we still largely end up going over there. You know, there, there are some good places, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, Mike subtle, not to blow too much smoke up his ass, <laughs> is, but his head any bigger than it already is. But, uh, but, you know, I, I, I can't think of anybody in this country that has uh, set the bar and, and led by example in terms of and consistently a, doing it. Yeah. Yeah. A, a really, really solid breeding program, number one. And two, you know, how, how to, to shape and, and imprint and bring those pups up uh, the right way, you know? And, and so to me, like what I'd love to see is, is the U S government, <laughs> A, understand that uh, B realize the the need and the importance for um, you know, for developing something like that, and then you know, having a, a group that's fit, you know well funded federally, that uh, you bring in people like Mike uh, that that really know what they're doing, and not you know, hey, I'm going a volunteer this person because they were a canine handler, and so you start a, a breeding program. Like, no, that, that's why we're we're at where we're at. Uh, you know, you, you need to to bring people in that already know what the fuck they're doing. <clears throat> and help them set up programs where, um, you know, they can, they can actually do that on a larger scale. One of the problems with that too, is that, you know, the larger scale thing is that scaling just like in any business, is is the tricky part. Um, you know, you and I have talked about that offline business wise is that how do you, how do you grow and and not stretch yourself too thin, whatever. And, And dogs, I think, highlight that even more than most industries because it's a living, breathing animal. It's not a, an inanimate piece of equipment that can be thrown in a fucking storage locker. If you don't have time to deal with it, uh, you know, or your, your mom gets sick and you need to take a month off. Like th- there is none of that, uh, during that window, it's a 24 seven gig. And if you fuck that up, the dog's not going to be worth, <coughs> worth, uh, you know, what, what it could have been, uh, in terms of performance that, uh, you know, that you, that you lost out on. And so, uh, you can only do so many at a time at one location, you know, like, yeah, like you, you can't have, you know, the answer isn't having one monstrous, you know, 5,000 fucking puppy facility. It's having, you know, 500 facilities that have 10 puppies, you know, or, or whatever. Uh, I'm not a math major. That's probably wrong. But, uh, <laughs> neither am I. neither so f- I couldn't correct it for trying. Fucking sue me. Uh, that's, what ca- that's why I use a calculator. Yeah, same uh, but, here. <laughs> You know, but th- that's the answer is that they've got to be you know spread out where where you've got that one on one attention. I mean, no different than you know we'll we'll use the human analogy. It's class size. You know, you look at a at a at a big you know Division one you know huge fucking thirty or forty thousand undergrad population college. You know, and you, and you take a, a classroom where there's five hundred students. You know, and and a professor up there. Like, what, what is your average? mean student fucking gaining knowledge wise out of that compared to, you know, uh, you know, another classroom next door that, that there's uh, a professor, you know, two, two professors assistants and five students doing hands on shit. Like it's, it's night and day difference, you know, and and that's the problem you run into with dogs. I mean, I I see that like with the warrior dog foundation, you know, people ask all the time, like, are you going to, um, grow the facility and, and, and expound on. And the answer is no, not, not this facility. Uh, you know, we're looking right now at, at adding, uh, satellite facilities where, where there are other, other facilities doing exactly what we're doing here, set up the same man, the same, you know, protocols, all the same, uh, but just doing it somewhere else because, you know, we're, we're at our max capacity, 30 dogs for, for the 20 acres that I have that, uh, you know, there, there's a house, and there's a full-time staff and, and whatever, but that, that's still like, that's the most we can handle and still, you know, give each dog the the uh the minimum amount of attention that they need in, in rehabilitation and what have you, you know, to, to add any more to that. They there needs to be another facility just somewhere else. Uh, you know and, and so with puppies it's it's even more so that way because there's so much one-on-one time that you need to do uh, you know with rag work with environmental stuff with social interaction with engagement with uh, you know teaching them how to use and trust their nose the cognition stuff that you do I mean if, if you were really gonna develop a, a robust breeding program like you know you you would you'd would only maximize it in my opinion is that if you were kind of one-on-one person with puppy you know or, or real fucking close to that. I mean, at a minimum, one person doing a litter and that's all they fucking do. Um, You know, uh, and and even that, like finding that many qualified people, you know, that are that that good, that are going to be able to to raise a litter from scratch and maximize that litter's genetic potential. Like how many fucking people do you know that that you would trust to raise a litter and give them the autonomy to to just know that they're going to do it right? Like there's not that many people that that I would say, yeah, I I would... You know, take a frozen breeding of the best fucking male I've ever had, and I just came across this banger fucking female. You know, and and I'm going to send this litter to this person. Like, how many people do you know that that you would trust to do that and and think that yeah, that litter is going to get fucking done
1: right? Not very many. Exactly. Yeah. And and the (laughs) one thing I try to get some of these uh, law enforcement officers that are leaving their agencies in droves now these days. Hey, one thing you know, those that have some good experience with dogs, um, finding the breeder who's willing to work with you in some way or another, whether you buy at a lower cost or whatever, and allow you to use your experience to raise that one, maybe two, because just like you said, the biggest trap we fall into, like my recent story is I have four Springer puppies, but all four aren't here at my place. I have two with two of the employees that work here. I have one with me and then another one that's also here but is raised by all of us because I wanted – it's kind of like an experiment. But each dog gets its own time, its own person, its own protocols. And even though we're training to do similar things with a dog, it's all detection, the, each dog has got its own time. So if you can find you know, a lot of these guys who are getting out, they're starting to develop their side hustle kind of, uh, so to speak, is one thing. Use that experience that you have – Because you know, in some cases, what the end product needs to look like. And if you've been doing it long enough, then you also can understand a lot of the training aspect. But get a pup, maybe two, and do like what Europe does, which is you have your dog that you're competing with, you have your dog that's a year old, then you've got your pup. That's kind of how most of them run their cycle. And so they're not overwhelmed. But they have the dogs of different phases and you can dedicate that training and that time to that phase and it's not overwhelming because just like you said, if you have too many or a friend of mine just got three pups and he's already learning, oh crap, that was way too many because what do they want to do? They all want to interact with each other. He doesn't have the space to keep them always separated. So, they, so it just can go down, circle the drain pretty quick if you're not careful, like you said in the beginning of all that, is we have to have a plan and execute that plan, um, you know, with the proper focus and attention like you, you can't just have 10 kids and think they're all going to do well if we have one teacher who's trying to manage all the the crazy kids versus you yeah. have that one teacher with two or three kids.
2: Yeah. Well and and you know to me the the daunting compound on top of that is that you know in in the scenario you just described, right? Like best case scenario and this is taking into account that even doing every fucking thing right just like with kids, some of them just aren't going to make it. Yeah. Right. Like some just just aren't going to be what it takes. So, so given that that there's that, that some, some of those aren't going to make it, you know, in a best case scenario, like in in the, in, in everything that you can do, like how many good quality puppies you think you could crank out in a year?
1: No, no, not many. You're three or four.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and there's, you know, around 50,000 working dogs at any given time in in just this country alone between police, military, federal, state, local law enforcement, customs, border patrol, et cetera. You know, so like it's an impossible task, you know, and and it's one that's, it's discouraging, you know, because like if there's not, you know, and, and we've been fortunate over the last, you know, several decades of, of, you know, primarily in Holland, but, but in several places in Europe, uh you know, them as a, a nation taking that responsibility on and doing a, a fantastic job with uh providing, you know, the, the best dogs uh in the world. You know, and uh and and that takes, you know, it doesn't take a village, it takes a fucking nation, clearly. Uh, you know, it takes an entire country that that has that as a pastime, the way, you know, we have adult softball leagues here for Christ's sake. You know, I mean, so uh that's the only way that, that you can really do it. I mean the, the one potential saving grace. Uh, I think uh, or I hope at least uh, or two of them is is one is is in technology which I hate to bring that up because I the, the thought of dogs being replaced by machines is is a scary notion. Um you know but I think that there there are some things that that you know as as technology advances that uh you know that, that may at least help assuage some of the demand. Uh but then cloning. Now I admittedly I mean I've been approached by by a number of different groups or entities that, that have shown interest in, uh, in cloning and, and using some of the the dogs. Um, you know, I've got a stable of 30 really high level retired dogs that, uh, you know, genetically are, are phenomenal and, and what have you. And, and people have, you know, wanted to, to clone dogs and whatever. I've never worked with anybody. I'm skeptical at best. Um, you know, but I, I, I would really like to try, uh, to take a dog that, that I know intimately, you know, that I've worked for a long time in, in every capacity that, that I can look and say, that's, that's a fucking dog right there. Like that's a dog I would bring, you know, a dog that I have on ice or what have you, um, and clone that dog and then raise it from a puppy and, and, and really see like, obviously the the personality the environment as they grow up is, is, is impossible to replicate, but you know, from a working drive alone standpoint. Um, from, from just the drives, the nerves, the fucking, the, 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 capacity genetically to do the work at the same level. Uh, and ultimately, you know, um, you know, the, the environmental nerves, the drive, all those things are, are, are pretty cut and dry. But most importantly is that when I get in a bite suit and I get in that dog's head and I push him, does he push back? You know, does he have the same level of, of intestinal, uh, character in him? then then that's, that's the saving grace. And then it's just doing it enough to where the the volume is high enough that from a business standpoint, it makes sense uh, cost wise, you know, because that, that's kind of the threshold, no different than like if gasoline goes away, like there's going to come a point where even if you have a naturally aspirated, or sorry, an internal combustion engine car, like oil companies, that there's not a a high enough demand that's going to justify um, you know, all of the infrastructure that takes place to bring gas to you, you know, at, at two bucks a gallon, three bucks a gallon, it's going to be $500 a gallon, uh, you know, you know, and so to me, like, that's kind of where cloning is, it's, it's not a proven enough mechanism, in my opinion um, you know, from a from a standard standpoint to where there's enough people that have bought off on it that are doing it to bring the the overall price of the technology to a reasonable enough price to where it actually makes sense to do it instead of breeding dogs. If if that does take place, then I think that could save the working dog industry. But I, I think that's really from my perspective the only thing that's gonna do it because I just don't see the US government doing it. There are not enough people uh, who are good enough at raising puppies to raise enough of them to uh, you know, to, uh, to fulfill the, the contracts and the, uh, the voids that, that are coming online now after 20 years of, of depleting the pond.
1: Yeah, no. And I, without, I can't get into a ton of information, but I have actually been a part of some uh, research in regards to cloning. And what I'll leave it with is a copy of a copy. And just like a Xerox, when you take a document from the original and you copy it, it's not the same. And what's being learned in regards to that is problematic in certain ways. Without again, I can't get into details, but what I can say is, yeah, we're there's a lot to be worked, <laughs> and there's a lot, there's concerns, and there's you, you throw in things like CRISPR into it, which they do um it's a it, it, it's bad in certain ways and and there's things again that we, we shouldn't fuck with mother nature you know in certain aspects <laughs> uh, well yeah
2: I mean it, it reminds me of the Jeff Goldblum quote yeah. quote in, uh, in, <laughs> in Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park. You yeah. Know, you're, yeah you're so busy whether or not you're trying to find out whether or not you could or couldn't you never stopped and thought about whether or not you should or shouldn't
1: that is one and I can tell you from what the knowledge I have it's touch a well said statement, because it's so true. And we're always scratching a surface at this point. But yeah, it, it's, in some ways that you're like, okay, this is really cool. And there's some, like you said, some positives out of it. But there's a lot of stuff that we have to figure out before it becomes any kind of viability, like you said. So without taking any more of your time, I wanted to end it with nutrition. Um, because we both know the nutrition part of it is a huge part um, I wanted to give this an opportunity for you because you've actually just launched um, a brand of uh, nutrition. And I'll let you explain it better because like, you can do it better than I can. Uh, talk about the food and what, why you did it and what you have.
2: Sure, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I, you know, to me, just you know, having been in the SEAL teams and having worked with with high level working dogs for for a number of years. Uh, and And even in myself, I, I know how vital and and important proper nutrition is. Um, I mean it's there's kind of a trifecta I think with uh, with people and dogs that, that parallels pretty succinctly, which is um, you know the the mental satiety and engagement, physical uh, exercise, active activity, uh, engagement, and then the, the fueling and the nutritional engagement, your, your body needs all three of those things to, to proper functional, functionally, uh, or, or to function properly. Sorry, fucking <laughs> dyslexic today. Um, <laughs> it's good. but you know, but the, but that's the rub, dogs are no different, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I see it all the time. And, you know, a lot of my one-on-one clients, uh, you know, on, on the uh, team dog side is, is, you know, they're they're working their dog out, you know, six hours a day and, and can't figure out why he's still such a pain in the ass. You know, what, what are you doing training wise? Well, you know, nothing. I just, I, I can't even wear him out. It's like, right. So you're, you're basically conditioning him to be in, in even bigger pain in your ass. Right. Is it, is it no different than, you know, if, if, if you're, you know, only working out and you're not mentally stimulating yourself at all, you're not learning anything, you're not doing anything, you know, that that's when people lose their fucking minds, uh if if you c- compound that by fueling your your brain and your body with shitty nutrition that's also, you know, causing inflammation and gut problems and uh you know cancer and and you know or at a minimum at 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 kind of a best case scenario in terms of the negative impacts like it's just not fueling you as well as as it could be then then you're you're wasting an opportunity you know it's a missed opportunity. No different than going throughout the day and and living with your dog, and and you know you're getting them in and out of the crate, and you're not taking advantage of of marking these behaviors that the dog is doing uh, that that you can you know increase reinforcement for that. It's the same thing as if if you're not feeding the absolute best thing that you can feed your dog, you're you're missing an opportunity to to train and keep that dog at a higher level. Um, one of the frustrations with dog food and, and, you know, companies such as that is, is, is just how big of a role marketing plays, just like in every other aspect of our life. Um, you know, but th- you know, does, does a Rolex tell time better than a Casio? No, it's actually worse. Uh, you know, it's, it's not as accurate as a $60 fucking G-Shock. Um, you know, but, but people buy it because they have brilliant marketing and have for years, diamonds, same thing I and mean, you name it. So, uh, unfortunately there's a lot of an ingredient completely accurate, uh, you know, that people shy away from or they gravitate towards because it seems like it's the right thing to do and it makes you as a dog owner feel better. What what I have found, and, and again, this is, you know, working with thousands and thousands of dogs over the last couple of decades <clears throat> is that, you know, it mirrors a lot of the same things that that human beings need. I, I will say it's a little different in terms of it's more carnivore-esque than it is omnivore-esque, uh, as, as we're involved, uh, a quick look at a dog's mouth tells you a lot about what they should be eating. You know, we have, you know, flat, flat teeth in the front and square molars in the back and and are more designed to eat uh, a more well-rounded diet. If you've got spikes and serrated carn uh, serrated fucking, uh, triangles in your fucking mouth, you're a fucking meat eater. You're a goddamn dinosaur, you know? Um, and that's what they have, you know? So, I mean, they're designed to eat fucking whole dead raw animals. Now, uh, yeah, I think raw diets are are the best, especially when they're complete. Um, but I'm, I'm also not naive to the fact that one, they're incredibly inconvenient and two, they're exuberantly costly. Uh, and especially if you're in a working environment I and mean, if you're deploying to fucking Afghanistan in August, like you're not bringing raw food over there. You're just not, uh, you know? Uh, and so there, there has to be a, a next best thing Uh, you know, I've tried dehydrated foods and patties and stuff like that. And same, like the, the, the cost was astronomical and most people just aren't going to aren't going to do it. And so uh, what I wanted to do is, is create a formula that had all of the ingredients that I liked, but had um, you know, the, the values in terms of the ratio, protein, fat, uh, you know, moisture, ass calcium, phosphorus ratios, everything kind of the way that I wanted, that's going to set the dog up for success uh, in In knowing that you know what I typically see is that dogs uh you know run run better and 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 do uh, from a performance standpoint do better and, and and are more productive on higher fat diets than what you typically see, just like with people i 'm not saying i 'm making my dog go keto uh, but fat is is a crucial fucking component to a lot i mean to their to their vision to their joint health to their coat health uh to their energy levels to all those things. most people think well i want Uh, You know, my dog to be fucking jacked. So I'm going to feed him a 40% protein diet, you know, especially when it's in a compressed kibble that's very hard on their kidneys. Uh, You know, so to me, I don't like to go above 30. I mean, 30 is is in my experience, uh, the highest I want to go even on a super active working dog, if they're having trouble gaining weight then you need to add more fat. And that's why salmon oils and uh you know, even throwing fucking butter or bacon grease or whatever in into in dogs' foods is, is what you see a lot of people doing. So I've got I've got two formulas basically that uh is is chicken meal and uh, sweet potato for for one, and then uh, salmon, herring, and sweet potato and brown rice on the other. Uh, they both come in thirty protein, twenty five fat, or twenty six protein and twenty fat. Uh, which I don't know of any other uh, dog food out there that has a twenty six twenty blend. Most of the time, when you see twenty six protein, it's well under twenty percent fat, which I think is a mistake. Uh, that's when do- dogs are less satiated; they're more they they seem more hungry, uh, or you need to feed them more, which gives them more protein and more fillers, which equals more dog shit, uh, and and they're not they're not using a, as much of it because they're they're being overfed, and so that's when you have to add uh, a bunch of other shit to keep them from getting diarrhea, uh, you know. Which which I think is you know it's kind of like the big pharma. I've got to take this to combat that, which causes this, which makes me need to take that, you know. And it's and it's a stupid vicious cycle. So to me, the the missing ingredient primarily in in trying to summarize this and, and keep people from falling asleep on us. Uh, it, it is that do- I think dogs need more fat and most of the foods don't give them enough fat. Uh, plain and simple is that, you know, if you want, if you're having a dog that's, that's having trouble gaining weight, don't give them more food with more protein in it. Give them a food with, with higher fat. And the nice thing is, is even if it's, uh, you know, like a, a maintenance formula, it's an older dog, what what have you, is that, you know, that the food that I have is very, very nutrient dense. It's all really, really good calories and and very high quality ingredients. Uh, so, so you can feed them less and because it has more fat in it, uh, they're going to be more satiated and not be fucking starving. No different than like, if you work out hard and you eat cod, you know, and and a spoonful of fucking broccoli, like you're going to be fucking starving. Right. But if you if you eat a fucking ribeye uh, with with butter glaze and salt on it, you're not going to be hungry for fucking two days. Um, you, you know, and so it's it's that same kind of principle is that uh, it, it's just far better for them. And, and same thing with from a working standpoint, I mean, sled dogs, as an example, uh, you know, they're not feeding them lean fucking uh, high protein proteins uh, during the Iditarod. They're giving them straight goddamn fat. Right. And, and so you can take that same principle. People may say, well, I don't have a sled dog. He sleeps on the fucking couch. Great. Still give him a high fat diet. Just don't feed him very much uh, because then his brain is working. You know, fat fats are crucial for joint health, for, for brain health, for vision, for all of these things that that primarily most dogs, especially as they get older, what do you see? Lower and lower and lower fat, 27 protein, 8 percent fat. And they're giving him six cups of fucking dog food. And they're, they're shitting piles of bear shit in their backyard. Um, you know, and, and so to combat that, that's the. Uh, you know, that's the mechanism with which uh, I have come to the conclusion that that did not exist out there and made me want to, to develop this formula in conjunction with a high level manufacturer that was willing to to work with me on it. And so uh, I'm really, really excited about, uh, you know, we, we just launched it here uh, last week is, is when the first bags of food started shipping. So uh, we've got the, the 2620 blend coming out in a couple of weeks, but the 3025 is out right now. Uh, and again, it'll be in those those two ratios. Formulas uh, and those two blend formulas the, the chicken for, and, and
1: uh, salmon, salmon, herring, sweet potato. And where do they go to find this uh, to purchase it?
2: So if you just go to MikeRitland.com, um, you know, that's really where you can find everything in mine, whether it's the online training, the merchandise, the collars, leashes, crates, fucking CBD, oil, all of that stuff, the uh, food, uh, merchandise, you name it. It's it's all, you know, kind of the hub is just MikeRitland.com.
1: Okay. Yeah, because I know you've got between the Warrior Dog Foundation, Team Dog tricos, uh, you are a busy man. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh to to do this with me and to share all this great information for everybody listening. Um you know, and I would recommend people reach out to Mike. Definitely go through, like you said, his Mike, his uh, mikeritland.com page um or join teamdog.pet if you are into training and you're doing training for pet dogs. Um it's a great forum with lots and lots of information uh check it out it's you know it's well worth you know and is it was it twelve ninety nine a month depending if it's not on sale
2: yeah yeah, twelve ninety nine if you want to do it per month, we do run promotions throughout the year, typically more towards the end of the year, the kind of Black Friday through January first stuff but uh or it's ninety nine bucks for the year um uh, I and it's unlimited access to to all of the content there's uh almost a thousand minutes of video. Uh and most importantly I think with all of that is that, you know, it'll be five years in August that I've been doing that, which is, is hard to even believe. But uh but the forums uh are are kinda where where the donuts get made, so to speak, is that uh, you know, people can go go in the forums and interact with each other and I get in there and answer questions uh every week. So um at this point, you know, there's five years worth of, of database basically of of, you know, dog owners of every type, you know, of, of every breed. I mean, you name it, experience, not experienced, big dog, small dog, old dog, young dog, uh, you know, great, great drive dog, no drive dog, nerve dog, good nerves, I me, mean, you name it. Uh, you know, and, and working with these folks and, and addressing their issues, a lot of times they'll post videos, uh, you know, YouTube links of, of them doing something with the dog. And this is what's happening in and myself. And, and a lot of times, a number of other uh, forum members will jump in there and, and uh, chime in as well and share some of their experiences. It, it's a community for sure, and that—that's what I love the most about the entire thing is that it, it's a family and a community of people that that all care about each other, that all help out, that you know, share their experiences, and and we all you know kind of work together to uh, to take the the village approach at helping everybody raise their dogs the right way. So it, it's been a really neat. Neat project and one that uh, you know I'm, I'm real proud of and, and happy that I've been doing because it, it's been been well received and I've just really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, no. And if you want to donate to a great cause, donate to the Warrior Dog Foundation. That's a great uh, organization for dogs, uh, and it's a great way to donate that money that you know will go to the care and welfare of these dogs that have either retired or retired early. And are getting that, like you talked about earlier, that one-on-one care. So Mike, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And everybody, until the next episode, stay tuned for k Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.